text for this morning is 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Let's read this together in unison. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to this text this morning, we pray that this will shape us. As we have been walking through these letters, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, we have asked You that You would change us individually and corporately. That we would be Your people. The church of the living God the pillar and buttress of the truth, your household, and that we would live as such. Father, we, we have considered the, the life to which you have called us as your church, and we confess that we fall far short of the glory that, that you have called us to. But Father, we thank you for seated, having Christ seated at the right hand of God and sending His Spirit to live in us. And that through His reigning power and His intercession for us and, and His work in our lives through the Spirit, we, we can grow, we can improve, we can, we can begin more and more to be who You've called us to be. Thank You that You, you call us and then change us. And that since You have begun a good work in us, You will complete it. Thank You that we look and see Your coming soon. And we long to see Your face. And we long to, to be with You and to experience the Father's infinite love. Father, we pray that, that You would speak to us through Your Spirit, through Your Word, by Your Spirit, in power and full conviction that You would turn our hearts from serving idols to serve the living and the true God and to, and to wait for the return of the Son. We pray that this morning as we hear the Word and speak the Word, that, that we would not just go through the motions of things that we are so accustomed to, but Father, that this time together would be transforming, that You would do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that is at work in us. We pray all these things in the name of Christ and for your glory. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, this morning we, we have come to the final chapter of the final letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And we have been on this important study, this journey together, since it was August 23rd, 2020 that we opened and introduce the letter of 1 Timothy together. 
And we came to these letters with the desire that the Holy Spirit would shape every aspect of the life of our church. That we would learn how to speak the message of sound doctrine. That we would learn the manner in which God has called us to relate with one another as members of His household. That we would embrace the means and the methods of the ministry that we are called to. And that the Lord would prepare men for ministry. That we would have elders and deacons that would be a part of our church. And that would be placed in position as God has described. All these things are what we've worked through in the texts of First and Second Timothy. And as you know, we've walked through many exhortations together. These, these two letters, First and Second Timothy, are, are full of urgent exhortations. And yet with those exhortations, we have been given by the Spirit of God through the inspiration here, we, we have been given powerful truths and, and powerful Spirit-filled motivations to be able, by God's grace, to walk in obedience to these commands that Paul has given to Timothy and by extension to us. And so this morning, we come to the final exhortation that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy that specifically concerns his ministry. All of the rest, and you can observe this in a, in a quick scan with your eyes, all of the rest of the text is personal instructions from Paul to Timothy, specifically wanting him to come and, 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 and visit him and bring some cloak and books and articles and things for, for Paul in his final days. So this, this is the last exhortation that Paul gives to Timothy concerning the ministry of the body of Christ. And so as we come to this final exhortation, I want us to understand that this is the quintessential text of Scripture on faithful preaching. First given by the Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Paul to Timothy, and then certainly by extension to the church in Ephesus and to us today. This is the God-breathed Word that has come down through the centuries to us for our good and for the glory of Christ this final ministerial exhortation is inestimably important to the ministry of every local church. It governs, and I want you to think of the next things that I say here. I want you to think of these and maybe jot a few of them down. Think of these as the applications on the front end of the message. Preach the Word. That's, that's of course, the central exhortation here. I charge you, preach the Word. And you might think, well, how does that apply to me? I don't preach the Word. Well, let's think of it this way. First of all, it governs how each elder exercises the preaching of the Word of God. That's maybe the first application. This is how the elders of Christ's church are to preach. But this exhortation also governs how each member is to listen to the preaching of the Word. And in a sense, what each member of the body of Christ should expect and even require from their church leadership. A third application is, this provides an important criteria by which to evaluate whether or not a local church is faithful to the Word of Christ. So we have an application to elders. We have an application to hearers. We have an application to the church as a whole. 
And there's another way we can look at this as well. This exhortation provides really a prayer list for local church members to pray as they take their preachers before the throne of grace. I would encourage you to do that with me. Look at this text and please pray for me that the Lord would enable me to preach like this text describes. And though this exhortation is directed primarily toward public preachers of the Word, public preaching of the Word, and primarily, I think, Timothy's, uh, Paul's application is even in the body of Christ, but secondarily also toward public preachers of the Word in, in the public square, I think this text can also provide a healthy example by which any member of the body of Christ can witness the gospel of Jesus Christ to those to whom God gives them opportunity. So this is an exhortation directed to the ears of listeners as well as the mouths of speakers and the hearts of us all. So please keep those applications in mind as we walk through this text. I want us also, by way of introduction, to again consider the situation in which Paul wrote this letter because it provides just a sense of urgency to this, even this particular exhortation. Paul was likely a matter of weeks, if not days, from his, from his beheading on the Ostian Way, according to tradition. And he knew it. He says it in the very next verses. Let your eyes fall down to verses 6-8. through eight. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. And actually, notice at the front end of that verse 6, for, that's a because, so Timothy, I want you to preach the Word because I'm not going to be here very much longer. So that, that really pulls some urgency out of Paul's heart and into this exhortation. Somebody has to preach the Word like Paul did, faithfully. Timothy was the next in line. Paul has before his mind's eye in the he has his before his mind's eye the end of his earthly race. I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He's seeing it. He knows that he is about to enter into the very presence of his Savior and Lord. The same Lord that he saw that one day years ago on the road to Damascus, right? And that saved him and humbled him, and called him to suffer much for the sake of his name. And he had spent nearly 30 years as a faithful apostle of the gospel, and an effective evangelist, church planter, and now his martyrdom is near. So out of love for the church, and out of love, as Paul confessed in his letters, out of his love for the elect who had not yet heard, and Christ Himself, He's filled with a sobering sense of urgency, knowing that His time is short. And, and what is the final ministerial? What did Paul save for last? This has to be noticed, I believe. What did Paul save for last? What is the final ministerial exhortation that he writes? And in faithfulness, Paul gives to Timothy this final powerful exhortation. He says, preach the Word. It's the last. Maybe it's the, one of the most important. It's one of the most critical. And I want you to see that Paul doesn't just say, preach the Word. He, he adds on to the front of this exhortation a powerful charge 
and motivation that we will look at. I charge you, preach the Word, Timothy. The Spirit-empowered event of preaching has always been biblically and historically central to the life of the local church and the advancement of the kingdom of God in the world. In fact, you can notice a symbol of that centrality to preaching that is even here in our Protestant room in which we meet. Why? How can we see that? Because the pulpit is right here in the center and up front. There we have it. That's even part of the historical illustration of this exhortation. From Jesus to the apostles to this very day, preach the Word. This This is part of the reason why we can still say that God is speaking today. Because God speaks. God is literally speaking through the preaching of His Word. The church of Jesus Christ is commanded to preach the Word. And specifically, the leaders of Christ's church are commanded to preach the Word. When the people of God are gathered, the Word is to be preached. When the people of God scatter, there is a sense in which the Word is to be preached there as well. And in verses 1-5, through Paul proceeds to give us one of the greatest biblical descriptions of faithful preaching. And that's really the question you should have in your mind as we come into this text is what is faithful preaching? How does a person faithfully preach God's Word? This text answers all of that. And again, let let this text become a prayer for you. Pray for me that I will preach like that. Like this. Pray for all who enter this pulpit. Every elder. Every elder in training. And all that will preach like this. May they preach like this. That's our prayer. Pray for those who hear that that we all as a body of Christ will be satisfied with nothing less than this kind of preaching. And as we scattered our communities, that we would take this example and reflect it in our gospel witness. So the question, what is faithful preaching? And of course, if you were to ask, take a survey of different folks all through across the United States and various churches, I wonder what kind of different answers you would get. What kind of preaching is faithful preaching to you? Right? What kind of preaching would you like to hear every Sunday morning? How many different answers could be received all across the United States? Right? But it doesn't matter what we think faithful preaching is, does it? It matters what Christ thinks. This this text tells us what it is, and that's what we long for. So number one, first of all, I want to tell you about the motive of faithful preaching. Number one, verse one, the motive of faithful preaching. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God. There's three things I want to point out to you. The presence of God and of Christ Jesus. That's, That's a first importance here. And then that Christ is the one who is to judge the living and the dead. That's the, a second part of a motivation here. And then thirdly, he is charging Timothy to preach the Word, and he's charging him by the appearing and kingdom of Christ. There's the, the third motivation that we need to think about. But before we get to those specific motivations, I just want to take a moment and highlight this word charge. 
Paul doesn't just say preach the Word. He says, I charge you, Timothy, to preach the Word. This charge is a, a solemn, emphatic, forceful command from a man who is under the authority of Christ. Who bears the delegated authority of Christ upon his apostleship. He is under a binding commitment to Christ and, and is calling another man to the same binding commitment to Christ. I charge you to this. And so Paul says, Timothy, I charge you to preach the Word. And, and we could say this to one another, fellow elders, I charge you to preach the Word. Fellow believers, here is an example for you to follow as well as you witness the Gospel. I charge you, preach the Word. And the charge is to preach the Word. But before Paul unfolds that, he gives these high motivations for doing so. Letter A, first of all, in your outline, there is one audience for this preaching. One audience that we must have in our mind. This may be the sing- this is the single, I think the single greatest motivation to faithful preaching is the one audience that you have in mind. And who is that? The presence of God and of Christ Jesus. That's staggering. It's unique how much Paul puts on the front end of his exhortation here. Paul doesn't front load all of his exhortations like this, but this one is sobering, serious, and powerful in its approach. This, this glorious presence of God. The, you are, we are preaching in the gaze of the Creator of the universe. We are preaching in the gaze of the One who died on the cross for our sins. He is watching this. The Father is watching this. Right now, this morning, we are preaching in the presence of God. He hears us. He sees us. Only He can enable this. And He will evaluate us. And so our motive ultimately is to preach for His pleasure. Our words, our passions, our lives through preaching, that it would bring Him pleasure through through Christ. Forget preaching for the pleasure of people. That's, That's what Paul is dealing with here. We're not to call to mind the presence of those who would pressure us into preaching a certain way. There is one audience that we are to have in mind, and that is God the Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive is to preach because we already have His favor. In Christ, we are already loved and embraced and have grace. Forget preaching for the favor of people. When we preach, we preach to put His glory on display. Forget putting yourself on display. I mean, why would we talk about ourselves if we are preaching in the presence of God? You ever think about that? Why would we talk about ourselves when Christ looks on? We preach in His strength, not our own. We preach for His fame, not ours. We preach to magnify who He is and what He has done, not who we are and what we have done. We preach His words, not ours. We preach according to His will, not ours. We preach with one high and holy audience in mind, and I am certain that I have not even begun to give you all the implications of what it means to preach with an audience of one. 
Secondly, Paul motivates not only with one audience, but letter B, Christ's judgment. He said, preach the word. I charge you, preach the word. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. We know that the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Christ will judge all men. We are to preach with Christ's divine tribunal before our mind's eye. We're to preach as if this judgment to which Paul is referring will happen in the next hour. What judgment does Paul have in mind here? Well, if I look at this phrase where it says, who is to judge the living and the dead, I think Paul has in mind primarily here and by contrast with the next phrase that's going to come and bear something additional out, I think this phrase, it's fair to say that he has in mind Christ's judgment of unbelievers. Judging the living and the dead. This judgment is called the great white throne judgment. We see it described in detail at Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Death and Hades were thrown then into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of, of fire. Who will be judged at that judgment? Unbelievers. Unbelievers who will be alive during the time immediately preceding that judgment. They will be ushered into that judgment. That's what I believe Paul means by who is to judge the living. Those alive during that time will be brought before the judgment throne of Christ. But also, those who have died before His judgment, but whom Christ will raise from the dead for this judgment. Not one being will escape the inscrutable judgment of Christ. We read of this judgment and this aspect of Christ's judgment where He will raise the dead to judge them in John 5, 25-29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This text I marvel at this text because we we read, for example, in John 11 where Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes walking out of his tomb. 
But this isn't just one Lazarus. This is countless people. Like it says in Revelation, people coming up out of the sea. People coming up out of the grave. People coming up out of Hades. Christ's voice will raise them all. And they will stand before Him. And so we are to preach with that judgment on our minds and in our hearts. What a sobering perspective. How would, how would that change the whole content and the tenor and the attitude of one's preaching? We are to preach with great urgency to see men and women and boys and girls escape this judgment by God's gracious salvation in Jesus Christ. Right? John 5.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes in Him who sent Me has eternal life. And He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. We preach for that. Right? We, we don't want people to stand at the great white throne judgment. We want them to be passed from death to life. We don't want people to be cast into the lake of fire. We want them to pass from death to life. We're to preach with an urgency, a great urgency to be free from the blood of those who reject Christ. We know that there will be those who reject Christ. Jesus stated that clearly throughout His earthly ministry. Acts 20, 26, and 27 bears this urgency. Paul says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you what? The whole counsel of God. What drove Paul to preach the whole counsel of God no matter what people, how people would respond to it? You know what it was? He preached with the judgment seat of Christ in mind. Or the, the great white throne judgment of Christ in mind. And he wanted to be able on that day to say, I told you, I was faithful. I preached the word to you and I didn't leave anything out. I preach to you the whole counsel of God. My conscience is clear. See, that's, that's, what, that's what, what Paul is calling us to. We are to preach with a great urgency for the glory of Christ as, we ju as, uh, as judge. We are to preach with a great urgency for the glory of Christ as judge so that through our preaching, the Holy Spirit would remove every excuse and God would be justified in His righteous judgment. I love there's a text in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 where, where Peter calls upon believers to live their lives and speak in such a way where even the unbelievers who would accuse them would be able to glorify God on the day of visitation. And that day of visitation can mean one or two things. It can either mean, one, the day that that unbeliever comes to faith in Jesus Christ, or the day that that unbeliever stands before God and is judged for their unbelief. They won't be able to look at Paul and say, wow, his life, his words, or Peter, turned me away from the Gospel. His life, his words, helped me to see that the judgment of Christ is perfect. Do you see? That's, that's the ultimate thing that we want to shoot for in our preaching. That God is perfect. He's righteous in His judgments. 
Like Psalm 51 verse 4, David in his own confession of repentance, he says, I'm saying this about your judgment of me, God, and my sin, so that you, you look and are declared to be just in all of your judgments. You are right, you are holy, you are good. So that, like it says in Romans 3.18, the whole world's mouths will be what? Stopped. And all will be called accountable to the righteousness of God. We preach for that. But not only do we preach in the presence of God in Christ and we preach with the judgment seat of Christ in mind's eye, but then also we preach, we charge, we're, we're preached, we're, we're charged to preach by His appearing and His kingdom with this in our mind's eye as well. By His appearing, by Christ's appearing By Christ's kingdom coming, Christ will return very soon. The whole whole New Testament is is charged with with an imminency in Christ's return. We will see Him. He will appear to us in glory as He really is. And as believers, we will be swept into the full expression of His eternal kingdom. At the second coming of Christ, we will see Christ in all of His glory. We will know the final, ultimate, climactic, eternal state of Christ's heavenly kingdom. We will live in the unspeakable joy of our Lord, and He will reign over us in love forever. We'll live in the unspeakable joy of the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness reigns. And where God's pleasures will be fully satisfying to us. And Paul is saying, preach like that is your future because what? It certainly is. That's the future for the believer. Christ's appearing. Christ's kingdom alone matters. Right? That means you will be rewarded for faithful preaching. You'll be rewarded by Christ. You will bring glory to Christ you will be awarded joy in Christ for all of eternity. That means you will be delivered from all affliction that comes upon you, even if it comes upon you because of faithful preaching. You'll be delivered into the kingdom of God. So then when you think about that, this appearing and joy and deliverance, what is there to fear as we preach? Is there anything to fear? Only that we would misrepresent God. Right? That's it. What is there to discourage you? Christ is coming. And His reward is with Him. And His deliverance is in His hand. What is there to discourage us in this preaching? What is there to hold us back from preaching the Word and making fully known the whole counsel of God like Paul did? What earthly thing can motivate you to faithful preaching more than this? There is nothing. There is nothing. These are the highest motivations of all. The presence of God, the Father, and of the Son, Jesus Christ. The, white, the great white throne judgment of Christ. And the return, the appearing, the unveiling of glory. 
and the final kingdom of Christ who will reign forever and ever. These are the highest motivations. And so Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. I charge you, preach the word. So what is faithful preaching? Well, we've looked at the motivations of faithful preaching. Let's look at the the method of faithful preaching. How do you do this? And we're just going to look at the first two points today. We'll save the next two for next Sunday. Number two, the method of faithful preaching. Please observe that Paul's central motivation to Timothy here is, again, to preach the Word. And I want you to see this. The other exhortations following on the heels of the exhortation to faithful preaching describe how faithful preaching is to be done. One of the most important dynamics in Bible study is to understand the relationship between words. So Paul says, preach the Word. How do I do that, Paul? Be ready. Reprove. Rebuke. Exhort. Patience. Teaching. That's how to be faithful in preaching. Paul communicates a description of the faithful method of preaching. Before we look at the accompanying words that describe preaching, let's just camp a little bit on that phrase itself, preach the Word. Letter A, preach the Word. First, this word preach, this word preach is a special word. It's the word that was used historically in Bible days for heraldry. We don't have those really anymore, do we? We're a little bit out of touch with that. You know what a herald is? A herald is this guy who was assigned by a king to go into the marketplace, the central square of a city, and say, Hear ye! Right? You've seen it on movies, maybe? That's about it. We don't have those anymore. Hear ye, hear ye! The words of the king to all who will hear. You're a herald. You're striding boldly into the marketplace, and you have a message from the king that must be heard. That's this word. It's not always used wherever you... You see uh, words that are commanding, speaking the word. But this, this is that word here. And so there's a sense, first of all, there's a sense of formality with this because you're speaking as a sent representative of the king. Paul means you to load into your idea of preaching everything that his word includes. You're a representative of the king. There's formality. There's gravity. You're speaking as one carrying out a very, very important task and and carrying a very, very important message from the king that all must hear. And the herald is intent on communicating that message with a fitting urgency. There's authority because the herald was speaking as one to whom the king has delegated his own authority because it is his words that have been sent and are being proclaimed by the faithful herald. The herald isn't making up his own message. The herald is delivering the message from the king. So there's authority. There's gravity. There's formality. And then there's a sense in which heraldry is something that is open and public. 
He's speaking as one who boldly enters the public place without fear or the favor of man because his affection is set on the king and on the souls of men. That's heraldry. And that's what Paul is saying here. Be a herald. Preach the word like a herald. Formality, gravity, authority, publicly. And as faithful heralds are speaking the message of the king with, with this boldness and, and authority and gravity and, 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 and with, with this urgency from the king, what are they to proclaim? Well, Paul tells us here, preach the word. Preach the word. Not our word, not the words of human wisdom or origin, but God's words. I want you to notice, look in your text, back up to verse 16. Of chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3.16, we looked at this several weeks ago now, all Scripture, that's God's Word, right? Another name for God's Word, Scripture, is breathed out by God. And notice the effect of God's Word. It's profitable for teaching. For what? For reproof. Well, now look down there in verse 2 of chapter 4, reproof, reprove, that's, that's the first one, so there must be a connection building here, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So what, what Paul is saying to preach here, the Word, which has a similar unfolding of reproof and rebuke and teaching, is the Scripture. Do you see that connection? The Word that Christ has spoken, the Word that the Spirit has inspired, the Word of the Old and New Testaments, the Gospel, the message of salvation, the whole counsel of God. That's what we're to preach. We're not to fill the ears of those to whom we preach with ourselves, or politics, or psychology, or entertainment, or self-help, or motivational speeches, or, or cultural agendas. It is so clear here. As heralds of the Word, we don't have time for messages that don't save sinners. Right? People are sinners. People are dying. The King is coming. The King is coming in power and glory to judge and reign. And we must get His message to those who will hear. Paul says, preach the Word. The Word. And the herald often proclaimed a message of amnesty. In other words, if you'll swear allegiance to the King... He will pardon you. He will receive you as one of His own subjects. That's what we preach, don't we? This is what we herald. The King created all things. And you have rebelled against Him. The King has cursed His creation. He, but He's made a covenant with His creation to save, to send the seed who redeem and reverse the curse. And so He came and was crucified and He was crowned as Lord over all and is reigning from His throne through the Spirit in His church, through the church that He's constructed Himself. And He's coming again. So hear His Word. Repent and believe the Gospel. And He will forgive you and receive you and give you everlasting life. That's our message. We're to proclaim the Word of God as heralds. Now Paul answers this question, how are we to herald this message? And that's where we get into these six different words, this, this readiness and reprove and rebuke and exhort and so on. Patience and teaching. Too often I hear people draw a line too between preaching and teaching. 
But please notice that there is a lot of intersection here. Preaching the Word includes teaching. It includes a readiness and reproving and rebuking and exhortation and patience. And again, I want to underscore this fact that what Paul describes here in these words of verse 2 are very close to the work of the Word as it's described in in chapter 3 and verse 16. That implies something important to us. The preacher is to be totally shaped by the Word in his preaching. The effect of the Word is to be the effect of preaching. The preacher is to be the slave of the text of the Word of God. So what the Word is doing in the text, the preacher is doing in his preaching. Does that make sense? That's that's why we see this connection between 3.16 and 4.2. So first of all, be ready. And that's letter B in your outline. Be ready. What is this readiness? This readiness. When I preach, I am to be ready. We are to be ready. It means to stand by, to be on hand, to be at the task, to be constantly eager, to be alert, insistent, with a sense of urgency. Can you you sense what the Word is describing? This is Timothy or an elder who has the message of the king in his hand, as it were. And he's just watching for every opportunity that the king will create for him to proclaim that message, and he's ready to jump right into it. He's ready. And do you see the occasions here that call for that readiness? He says, in season and out of season. Readiness must be how often? Constant. In season, out of season. In other words, when it's convenient for the hearer or the speaker, and when it's inconvenient for the hearer or the speaker. When it is culturally acceptable, when it isn't culturally acceptable, doesn't matter. What do you do? Preach the Word. When the church is in unity, you preach the Word. When the church is in trouble, what do you do? Preach the Word. When the church is joyful, when the church is grieving, when the church is having easy times, when the, when the preacher is having easy times or hard times, what do you do? You preach the Word. S- times of pleasantry. Times of suffering. Times of sickness. It doesn't matter. What do you do? We're called to preach the Word. Now, this isn't a call to be rude or obnoxious or brash, but a call to be ready to preach through all the seasons that God's sovereign providence affords in the life of a preacher or the church. Here is a call to be constant, capable, committed, with confidence in the King and His message. And we're commissioned to preach the Word. Now, as we preach the Word in readiness, it's to have that same effect upon the hearers that the Word of God has upon the hearers. And so let's look at those three aspects, or the next three aspects here of faithful preaching. Letter C is to reprove. Preaching must include reproof. What does that mean? Now I'm gonna it's sometimes hard to draw distinctions between some of these words, right? Reproof, rebuke. What's the difference? And that's what I want to try to do for us. What is reproof? It means to show someone his fault through words. Think about that. To show someone their fault through words. To bring conviction upon someone by shining the light of God's Word upon their sin. 
This is, again, one of the main effects of God's Word upon every aspect of our lives. We are sinners. Do you agree? Yes. We are sinners. We know this deeply. And sinners are blind to their own sin. Right? The, best, the people who can best see your sin and my sin is not us. It's someone else. Right? But the Word of God is far more discerning than anyone else. It pierces even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Sinners are blind to their own sin. And blind sinners have a stubborn way of persisting in their own blindness and sin until they destroy themselves and damage people around them by their sin. So it is a great kindness of God to give us His Word to reprove us, showing us our faults, showing us our sins so that we wouldn't, otherwise we wouldn't see it. And again, it's a great kindness of God to give us preachers who by God's Word reprove us humbly and lovingly, showing us our faults and our sin. That's reproof. Faithful preaching will employ reproof. It's not pleasant, but it's good, right? Do you see that? We need to see our sin. That's the point of our whole salvation, isn't it? To become like Christ. Now, if reproof stops and halts the sinner in his course of sin by showing him his fault, then rebuke takes the next step. Rebuke takes the the very next step in that work of change and begins to turn the sinner around and away from his sin. So letter D, rebuke. Rebuke means to charge someone to immediately stop a particular sin. And and doing so by explaining to him the seriousness of that sin. So if reproving shows someone their sin, rebuking calls someone to immediately stop it by showing them the seriousness of that sin. Do you see the difference? Let me show you your sin. Now let me show you the seriousness of your sin so it'll help you stop. That's the idea. You need to see. We need to see how serious our sin is. The offense of sin against God. The consequences of sin. The effect of the sin upon ourselves and our families and our church and and the name of Christ and so on. Most of the time, sinners like us need more than just reproof. He might or she might be shown his sin and he might acknowledge that what he is doing is needed is indeed a sin against God, but he might not feel very compelled to immediately stop that sin. I know it's there. I'm just going to kind of, we'll see what happens. What's needed then? Rebuke. He needs to see beyond the fact of his sin to the seriousness of his sin. And then by God's grace, he'll be moved by the Spirit to fear the Lord and feel godly grief over his sin and begin to walk in true repentance by immediately ending that specific practice of sin and and turning toward God in obedience. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Do we not, in the daily exercise of disciplining our children, use both reproof and rebuke? We might reprove them by saying, for example, it's wrong to lie. God says lying is sin. You just lied when you said A, B, C. Can you see that you lied and and that your lying is sin? And of course, what do they answer? Yes, I can see that. 
But that's not usually where we stop the discipline, is it? Because that's not usually sufficient to end the lying. Just the knowledge of sin. We proceed to tell them something like this. Now, listen. If you continue in lying, I will discipline you. And if you continue in lying as a way of life, you'll not be able to tell the difference between truth and lying. You will hurt everyone in your life who loves you. You will experience great pain in your life. You will not be able to know God by walking in the truth. And if you're not delivered from the grace of God from a life of lying, you will be separated from God forever. And I don't want that for you because I love you. So you must stop lying. Now, do you see the difference? There's the fact of sin, then there's the seriousness of it. That's what faithful preaching includes. That's rebuke. That brings another layer of biblical motivation and conviction to turn the sinner's heart from his or her sin. And isn't the Bible filled with that kind of rebuke? Filled with it. Out of love. The faithful preacher will also give loving rebuke. But that's not all. Because now that a particular sin practice has been stopped, the sinner needs to learn how to walk in obedience. He needs to learn now how to face those same situations in which before he felt temptation. Only now, he needs to know how to trust God and obey His will. He's got to have that positive help now to walk in righteousness. So that's where letter E comes in. Exhort. These are magnificent words. Preach the Word with readiness, with reproof, with rebuke, but also exhortation. This is the positive counterpart to reproof and rebuke. This is the companion to training in righteousness, for example, in chapter 3, verse 16. Exhort. What does that mean? It's a beautiful word. Picture it with me as I, as I describe it. It, it. it means to call someone to your side. Come here. Sit next to me. Let me talk to you. That's exhortation. To speak to them and to address one's heart with the truth that is necessary to produce lasting change and spiritual progress in Christ-likeness. Call to your side. That's what the word literally means. And let me talk to you about truth. I want to help you. I want to encourage you. And all of it's done for the good of the hearer. And the glory of God. And this word exhortation takes on many shades of application because, it's, because here's the thing about exhortation. It always seeks to give the hearer only what's fitting for that hearer. Just what they need to hear in the way they need to hear it in order to overcome their obstacles and grow in godliness. Exhortation calls somebody to side and it, and it, and it shapes itself to meet the needs of of the hearer. Not to compromise the truth, but to meet the heart need. So sometimes exhortation may take on a shade of admonition, which is what? A stern challenge with the truth. And you'll see this particular word that's behind this word exhort. You'll see it translated throughout the Bible in many different ways. You'll see admonition sometimes. To admonish someone, a stern challenge to walk in truth. Or it, sometimes it might take on the form of an entreaty, which is, which is to urgently plead with someone. Like that, like that Proverbs father in Proverbs who says, my son, please hear my word. See my heart for you. 
I beg you to choose this way of life. There's admonition sometimes. Sometimes there's entreaty. Other times there's encouragement, which is strengthening assurances. Listen to the promises of God, dear brother, and walk in truth. You see? So there's, there's admonition. There's entreaty. There's encouragement. And then the last word that this word can become is comfort. And that's tender consolations. When someone is full of doubt and fear and weakness and needs that help, they don't need admonition, right? They need comfort. They need consolation. So whatever the hearer needs to hear in order to learn to walk in obedience and to trust the Lord, that's what exhortation seeks to give. And Paul plays this out so well in one verse. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 He says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak, but be patient with them all. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 And most importantly, all of those shades of exhortation will be packed with scriptural truth. That's the most important part of this. When you exhort someone to walk in obedience, what are you talking about? Right? You're talking about the knowledge of God Himself that they can follow in Christ's ways because God is holy. He is full of mighty attributes and mighty acts. Right? You're talking about God. His, his attributes and His acts. You're talking about of God's affections toward us. His steadfast love, His mercy, His grace, His compassion. You're talking about God's promises. You're talking about the truths of the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. You're talking about the gospel and all of its effects on our lives. You're talking about the blessings of grace that come to us from heavenly places through the Holy Spirit sent by the risen and reigning Christ. You're talking about the realities of the identity that we have in Christ. You're talking about the work that Christ promises to do in us and through us for His own glory and so much more. That's what fills the content of exhortation. So repentant sinners need to hear these glorious grace-filled truths in order to truly change from the heart and persevere in godliness. Repentant sinners must hear more than the reproof and the rebuke of God's holy law. They must also have the hope and the enabling power of the gospel of God's grace. Both come together. has to be. Otherwise, we won't change. And God's word masterfully serves both to the sinner's heart. Therefore, faithful preaching Take that all now into, into the connection with faithful preaching. Faithful preaching shows a person his sin. Yes. Faithful preaching shows the seriousness of that sin. Faithful preaching gives the sinner's heart the fitting words of truth that change the heart affections and reposture that sinner toward Christ the Lord and His goodwill. Faithful preaching seeks to apply the glory of God and the gospel of Christ in its fullness to the sinner's heart so that that sinner can delight in submitting to Christ and walking in His will. Now, before we move on to the last two words of verse 2, patience and teaching, I want to make a few additional applications about these three words I want you to understand. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. I believe that these three aspects of faithful preaching, again, are woefully absent in preaching today in churches all across America. 
pastors and people do not want to hear sermons that include reproof and rebuke. And you can see why. It's not pleasant for hearers to hear. Show me my sin, right? That's not typical of someone apart from the work of grace, right? It's, that's not what people demand naturally, unfortunately, and that's what the text is going to deal with in verses 3 and 4. It's not pleasant for preachers to preach. Most churches today, hearers and speakers, want sermons filled with feel-good, right? That's, that's, that's what's most popular. But feel-good, again, doesn't, doesn't change lives or fit people for heaven. Feel-good keeps people comfortable on the road to hell, Right? That's what feel good does. Paul doesn't say any of that. It's reprove. It's rebuke. It's exhort. How it's done in the graces of Christ, but those are essential. And that's one reason why it's such a big deal with Paul, why Paul ended his exhortations to Timothy here. Christ must be glorified in the salvation and sanctification of sinners. Sinners must be delivered from the wrath of God and transformed to walk in Christlikeness. People do not like, though, to hear the exacting demands of Christ's will upon their lives. They may not like to hear the serious consequences of their sin. So often, preachers don't exercise faithful preaching. But I want to invite us all, by God's grace, let's be different. Can we be different by God's grace? I know we can in God's, in God's goodness and grace. And you know, and pastors do not often give true exhortation either. I don't want to gloss over that word. Do you know why true biblical exhortation is so rare? Because most pastors don't explain God's word as it's meant to be explained. I, what do you mean? Many, many people, many men all across the world today are standing up in pulpits and saying, don't do that. Start doing this and leave the power of change to human effort. Right? And that's not effective for God's people. Human effort cannot accomplish true godly change from the heart and perform persevering Christ-like character in the life of a sinner like us. Only the application of the law of God and the gospel by the Holy Spirit does that. And you need both. And when the Word of God is rightly explained, it yields a powerful, if you could say, one-two punch of the conviction of God's law and the comfort of the gospel of grace. That is how the New Testament unfolds. That changes lives. You've got to hear God's law, but you need to hear the grace of God in the gospel. Faithful preaching must include all of it. Reproof, rebuke, exhortation, and then those three all must be done with what? Patience. Here's the attitude in preaching, faithful preaching. Patience, what is that? Endurance. Perseverance. Constancy. So there's a, there's a longevity to it. it. It persists over a long course of time under a great weight, but there's also a side to that patience where there is forbearance and long-suffering because the effects 
of faithful preaching are various and sometimes painful and sometimes non-existent, apparently. And it says, notice here, not just patience, but what? Complete patience. Paul puts that word on the front of it. It's great patience. All patience. I remember some of those things just stick like a burr in your mind during school. I remember my undergrad and taking an internship at a local church nearby the university. And I remember that pastor saying, and we're so young, good night. Wow, we don't even understand what we're getting into. And, but he told us, he said, when you begin to teach God's people God's word, you need to understand that we as sinners take a long time to change. And when you think you've been patient, you need to tack on a whole lot more patience on the end of that. Right? I just remember he said that. But it's so true because that's how we are. Why is patience so important in faithful preaching? Because sinners like us don't change quickly. Even justified sinners grow in holiness as slowly as trees grow. Sinners like us often react negatively to conviction. So what is required? Patience. Persistence. Gentle constancy. Zeal that perseveres, but with humility. And the God whose word is preached and whose person is represented by the preacher is a God who is perfect in patience, isn't he? That's maybe the biggest reason why patience is so important. 1 Timothy 1.16, I love Paul's confession of salvation where he says, my salvation is an illustration of God's perfect patience. He, he was so patient with me. A blasphemer, Paul says. And so God's character must be reflected in the preaching of the preacher who is urging sinners to repentance. So how can a preacher preach with patience? First, evaluate himself before the perfections of God. Understand how far, how far short he falls and how slow he is to grow in godliness. This is an exercise of Matthew chapter 7, right? Take the log out of your own eye before you take the sliver out of somebody else's eye. I always have a mental picture of that in my mind, and finally I found it online. Somebody drew it with this massive beam coming out of somebody's eye. I'll have to send it to you someday. That's, that's what patience, that's what patience we need. It begins by evaluating yourself before the perfections of God, not other people, and evaluating how slowly we all grow. And second, Again, to be amazed at God's perfect patience toward us. That's how we can preach with patience. God is patient with us. And third, to be convinced that human anger and forcefulness does not produce divine righteousness in God's people. James 1, 19 and 20. But the powerful work of the Holy Spirit through the preached Word of God does change people. So preaching is not to be delivered in sinful anger by human forcefulness or, or through artificial emotional manipulations or faithful preaching is to be done in complete patience with complete reliance upon the Holy Spirit's work through the Word. And then finally, teaching. Faithful preaching includes teaching. Always includes teaching. So many people, again, have somehow concluded that there is a separation that must exist between preaching and teaching. But Paul clearly insists that faithful preaching includes teaching. Well, what is meant by teaching? 
Whereas the, there's the objective definition of teaching, sound doctrine. Of course, Paul, all through the, the letters, insists that sound doctrine be fed to God's people. Elders must teach God's people the sound doctrine of Christ that, delivers, that He's delivered to the apostles in the New Testament. It's, what is doctrine when you think of that? When you think of that definition? Isn't that the foundational statements of truth that are immovable and unchangeable upon which the church of Jesus Christ is built? And so preaching must include that sound, healthy, accurate, Christ-centered, life-giving doctrine. That doctrine must be drawn from the whole counsel of God, not just bits and pieces here and there. And again, that's what Paul said, Acts 2.20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, Paul says, and teaching you in public and from house to house. And again, verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. But not only is the objective concept of doctrine implied here, but I think also it's the subjective element of, of teaching, which is instruction. What do you do with doctrine? You instruct people in doctrine. Instruction. It's not easy for God's people, sinners as we are, to think God's thoughts after Him, right? Or to live like His Son. So what we need is clear, logical, detailed even, instructions of truth and practice that can be applied to daily life. And sometimes those include explanations, however lengthy, illustrations, principles, examples, comparisons, contrasts, all of it. That's included in instruction. Each of these are part of the instruction that teaches God's people God's Word so that we can grow up in likeness to Jesus Christ and bring Him the glory that He deserves. And so faithful preaching must include patient teaching, week in, week out, day by day, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Paul says this so well. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we can present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Did you hear that verse? What is the effect of faithful preaching? That God's people would be presented mature before the throne of Christ someday. Think about that. What a weight that is on me. This preaching is designed to prepare you for the throne of God someday. And think of how vital it is then for you to receive it. This is what God has ordained to prepare you to stand before God someday. And it's not anything human that either of us can do. Paul says, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I want everyone presented mature in Christ. That's faithful preaching. That was Paul's final exhortation. That's Timothy's calling, and that's our calling as well. Well, next week we'll look at the moment of faithful preaching, verses 3 and 4, and the man, faithful preaching, verse 5. But as we close this morning, I want to share a verse with you, bringing this all together. And I want to give us, I want to point you to Christ in the end here and His, His grace to even work this in our lives. What does Romans 8.32 say? He who did not spare His own Son, 
but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Follow this logic. If Christ died, if Christ gave His life so that we, His church, would be sanctified from our sin and prepared to enter the glory of the Father's love, then will not God give us everything else we need through Christ to see that that saving work is brought through to completion? What's the answer to that question? Yes, He will. He has promised and proven that He will. He proved it by His own death on the cross. And He's promised it in His Word. And does not Paul tell us in Ephesians 5 that Christ will wash His church in the Word to bring about that completed saving work? It says, Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the, what? The Word. So that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Again, here's the logic. Then Christ will supply to His church, since that's true, He will supply to His church faithful preachers and by His Spirit enable their faithful preaching so that His bride will be cleansed and washed and prepared in splendor for His eternal presence. Isn't that great? So we can take heart. Christ will give us faithful preachers and enable faithful preachers among us for our good and for His glory. And that's what we need to pray for. Before I pray, let me say one more thing. How many times have I said that now? <laughs> I want to say something to you who still have not received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. I'm sure there's some here that have not yet. Do you know Jesus was a preacher? It says it in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1.39, it says He went throughout all Galilee preaching in synagogues and casting out demons. Now, I can't cast out demons. <laughs> but Jesus did both. He preached and He cast out demons. What did He preach? What did Jesus preach? Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming what? The gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And what is that but reproof and rebuke and exhortation? Turn from sin that will take you to hell. Turn from self-righteousness. God will not share His glory in your salvation with you. His righteousness alone saves. His Son's death on the cross alone removes guilt and absorbs punishment for sin. The only reason, the only reason that sinners refuse to repent and believe the gospel is because they love their sin. They love what will kill them. And so that's why Jesus said, the time is here. The King has come. I am here, Jesus said. And I am calling you to turn from sin, turn from self-righteousness, and trust in the good news that my life of righteousness, my death of atonement, my resurrection, my ascension, my reign, my coming 
is your salvation. Trust in me, Jesus says. Trust me. And fall before me as Lord. And follow me. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to you? You must hear it. That's what, that's what a herald's words are for. They are there to be heard and taken to heart. Will you respond to him? You must. Notice that Jesus didn't give invitations. He didn't say please. He said you must repent and believe the gospel. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we... We come to you as your church. And we know that everything you tell us, you tell us with a great heart of love and compassion and grace and mercy. We have your word and it is good. But we know that you give us warning with it. You give us rebuke and reproof. Let us hear both your goodness and your severity. And may we run to Christ and rest in Him alone, His righteous life and His atoning death. And Father, raise up in our congregation an army of faithful preachers. For your glory and the good of your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.